The following message is by Dr. Cliff McManus, pastor-teacher of Grace Bible Fellowship, located in Sunnyvale, California. Well, it's Easter, and my question is, do we know what Easter really means? I say that because, maybe like you, I got several texts early this morning from all kinds of people all over the country, really various messages. The most common message that I received this morning on text was, Happy Easter! Some were individual texts, some were little group texts, people I've known. Most of the folks that text me this morning were people I've known for quite some time. And one of the messages, actually there were a couple that kind of saddened me when I saw it, was, Happy Easter! And there was a little group text, and there was a little bunny rabbit, and a little chicken egg with a little chick in it and what was sad about it happy easter have a wonderful day was the person saying that not a christian actually they're an atheist someone i've known for decades been praying for witnessing to and they were sincere they truly believe that today's a great day to celebrate and they celebrate it as easter but they have no affiliation they don't attach it with jesus christ or the bible whatsoever so they're actually celebrating this day so that was sad to see that and then I got another one shortly thereafter from someone I know and have known for decades who's an agnostic so here's two people friends people I love saying happy Easter and the irony they don't even know what Easter's all about and that's true all over we we all know folks if we're Christians we know people talking about Easter, happy Easter, celebrating Easter, and they don't know its meaning. They don't know the fullness of it. So that's our privilege today as Christians, as God's people, for those of us who know Christ, or God's children, and he's given us the treasure of his word where he speaks to us. And here's the divine interpretation of what Easter is all about. And part of our worship is we have the privilege to go to God's word together, and we're just going to listen to how God explained the meaning of Easter, or that first resurrection 2,000 years ago. And the more I read from Scripture, the better. The more I don't deviate from God's Word, the better. We want His thoughts, not mine. And by God's grace, my task is simply just to illuminate it and hopefully help God's Word be easy to understand and then apply it to our life. That's our goal this morning. We're looking at Luke chapter 24 and the true meaning of Resurrection Sunday. And there are four Gospels. There's Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. Uh, four Gospels. Most of you are familiar with those. And God gave those, have these moved these godly men who were living during the time of Jesus, eyewitnesses, to write down an account of Jesus from his birth to his ascension on high and then important highlights with respect to his ministry. And it's been preserved by God's grace for 2,000 years for us. And all four accounts talk about the resurrection of Jesus Christ. And here we see the meaning of the resurrection and actually historical details of actually what transpired. So that's our blessed opportunity we have this morning as we look to God's Word in Luke 24 to be reminded of the true meaning of Easter. Do we really know what it means? We do because God has revealed this to us in Scripture. We're going to just look at Luke 24. If you want to follow along, I'm going to start at verse 1. Uh, We're going to go to the end. I'm going to skip a big section there from 13 to 35. Just to say one word about that. It's kind of a transitional portion of Scripture. And then we'll pick up the story, verse 36, and conclude. And and what I've done is 
taken this narrative passage and just came up with four points to kind of align our thinking with it as we just walk through the text and see what it says. It's a wonderful, blessed truths. And really what I'm highlighting here, what Luke highlights, is the true meaning of Easter resurrection, the significance of here Christ's resurrection rising from the dead. And this is an important reminder as we have the privilege to study this one event in the life of Jesus Christ, his resurrection. We can't forget that the resurrection is tied to other things about Jesus, and it's all a part of the same story. It's one complete story. So just to caution, we can't isolate the resurrection story apart from very important other elements regarding Jesus. We need to understand them all in their context. The resurrection only has meaning in the context of the rest of Jesus' life and also in light of who he is. It's not just an event to be celebrated without what came before and then also what came after. I'm reminded of that is uh, if I were to ask you a question, what is the most important event ever in Jesus' life? Don't answer out loud. A, the birth of Christ. B, the death of Christ. C, the resurrection of Christ. And then D, the ascension of Jesus Christ. Don't answer out loud. But which one of those is the most important event in Jesus' life and ministry? I've actually heard sermons uh, offering all four answers as the solution. Recently, uh, Pastor Derek and I were somewhere at a fellowship time and a preacher and then also a music leader who was actually pitting Easter against the birth of Christ. Well, the birth is more important than Easter. Because if the birth of Christ didn't happen, Easter wouldn't happen. And I'm thinking, wait, do I agree with that? Uh, no, I don't agree with that. I don't believe that Easter, uh, Christmas is more important than Easter. I've heard sermons that the resurrection is the most important event that happened in Jesus' life. I've heard a sermon... And remember it in detail that the most important event in Jesus' life was his death, his crucifixion, the most important. And there are sermons where people will preach and emphasize the greatest event, the most important event in the life of Jesus was his ascension. So what is the correct answer? Which one is most important? The answer is they're all equally important, aren't they? They all go together. And that's how we're going to study the resurrection. The, the resurrection isn't an entity unto itself. It's really the completion of the work begun by Christ. And it even furthers even more work that he did with his ascension and his work that he continues to do as the high priest who intercesses on behalf of us. So we have the complete message of the saving work of Christ. Let's go ahead and look at it. And here we are looking at this glorious truth called the resurrection. Uh, four points there. And the first one is... Really what we're looking at in this text is something from an, a historical eyewitness who lived in the days of Jesus, and that is Luke, and he was an associate of the Apostle Paul. Luke tells us in his gospel clearly that he went around and interviewed many people and talked to eyewitnesses. He probably talked to Mary, the mother of Jesus. He talked to the women who followed Jesus, talked to other disciples who were there from beginning to end. And, of course, he got information from the Apostle Paul. The Apostle Paul got divine revelation from the Lord Jesus Christ. And so Luke, moved by the Holy Spirit of God, amassed all this data, historical data, that he got from eyewitnesses all about who Jesus Christ was and what he did. And then moved by the Holy Spirit of God, ensuring that he wouldn't make any mistakes and that he would do it without error, he wrote the Gospel of Luke, the inspired account. So these four main points we're looking at, this is true history. This is not fantasy. It's not mythology. It's not just an idea. It's not just one man's opinion. 
hasn't been changed or dabbled with or changed over uh, the course of centuries. It's been preserved by God regarding the truth of the resurrection of Jesus Christ. And so the first point we're going to look at is regarding the reality and the truth of the resurrection of the Lord Jesus Christ is the place of the resurrection, where it took place, and that is the tomb. So let's go ahead and look at it, uh, verses 1 through 12. The place of the resurrection, that is the tomb. And here, the gospel uh, of Luke, Luke is establishing, among many things, he's establishing that the event that took place here, the empty tomb, is a historical fact. It's a historical reality. That's what Luke is, one of the things he's trying to establish here, or he did successfully establish 2,000 years ago. How did he do that? Well, as a Jew, as an educated Jew, writing to many Jewish people actually at the time. Most of his witnesses, by the way, regarding the ministry of Jesus Christ, were Jewish. And they were people of the Word. They were people of the Old Testament. They were people of the Mosaic Law. And they had a very specific paradigm and mindset as to how to perceive reality and establish truth. They lived among Greeks during the years when the Greeks didn't necessarily understand reality property. They made up their own religion and had all these things we call mythology and Zeus. They actually believed to be true. Uh, The Jews were not like that. They established truth as it was given by God, and there was a process by which to establish truth. And one of the reigning principles in a Jewish mind to establish truth, whether it was legal truth or spiritual truth, biblical truth, was the principles God gave to Moses, particularly in the book of Deuteronomy and Leviticus, where God said, from a legal point of view, with respect to truth and reality, you cannot validate anything to be true, especially in a courtroom, without the testimony of two or three witnesses. And in verses 1 through 12, Luke is giving us many eyewitnesses, a multiplicity of witnesses. He only needs two or three. He gives us many more than that. And as a result, he is establishing when it happened historical reality, historical fact that cannot be denied based upon reliable eyewitnesses of the time. We'll see that as we walk through the text. So let's go ahead and look starting at verse 1. But on the first day of the week, this is Sunday as we know. The Jews didn't have names for days, Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday. They gauged everything based on the Sabbath day. And everything was re- seen in relation to that. So so the first day of the week is Sunday. So on the first day of the week at early dawn, they came to the tomb bringing the spices which they had prepared and they found the stone rolled away from the tomb. And when they entered, they did not find the body of the Lord Jesus. While they were perplexed about this, behold, two men suddenly stood near them in dazzling clothing. So as we read this opening account, the first people to the tomb where Jesus was buried and laid are this group of people called they. Who are they? Well, Luke already told us who they were. Go back to Luke 23. The scene is the crucifixion. Six hours has transpired. Jesus is about to die. He's been crucified publicly on a cross. It's just about past 3 o'clock in the afternoon. He's said six different things. He gets to the seventh. He knows that his time is at hand. He's ready to go back to to heaven. His work has been accomplished. He absorbed the wrath and the fury of a holy God upon himself and his own body as a substitute for sinners. And verse 46 of 23 in Luke says, Jesus cried out with a loud voice. He screamed this, the top of his lungs from the cross publicly. Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. Having said this, he breathed his last. Jesus was in total control of his life. He determined when he would be crucified. He determined when he would breathe his last. 
He's the sovereign one. So this is the scene of the crucifixion. There are crowds and masses of people around watching in curiosity. There are passers-by who are mocking him and insulting him while he hangs from the cross as the Savior for six hours. There are other people who are at the cross because they have to be there. They are soldiers given the duty to crucify him and do crowd control. They don't know what to think. Then there's a small multitude or a small group of people who are actually committed followers of Jesus Christ who didn't scream at the top of their lungs, crucify him, crucify him, hidden among the crowd, sprinkled among the masses here at the foot of the cross. We know that Mary was there, his mother at the foot of the cross, John the apostle. Where's the other ten apostles? Hiding in fear of their life, fearing death, not understanding what's going on, not believing that Jesus would rise again the third day. Other committed disciples and believers there are just a small group of women. These faithful women. That's who this is talking about. That's the they in chapter 24. These they. It's these faithful, courageous, committed, loyal women who had been following Jesus throughout his ministry in Galilee more than over a year. That's who they are. And these women are at the crucifixion. Some of them are kind of at a distance. Maybe out of fear. We don't know. But they didn't want to leave Jesus, their blessed Lord. Verse 49, at the foot of the cross, it says, just as Jesus gave up his last breath and all his acquaintances and the women who accompanied him from Galilee were standing at a distance from the cross seeing these things. There it is, the women. It's these same group of women who are mentioned in verse 55. So Jesus is crucified. He is dead. And before the Romans could take his body off the cross, Joseph of Arimathea, a devoted disciple of Jesus, Nicodemus, a converted Pharisee, approaches Pilate and says, we, can we have the body? We want to take care of the body. And that, that's granted. So Joseph of Arimathea, Nicodemus, they take Jesus' body off the cross. The women, these devoted women, they're watching the whole time. Their blessed Lord has been killed. He's on the cross. Will the Romans take him? Oh, Joseph, Nicodemus, thank you, Lord. Take him off the cross. What? Okay, they're... They're taking him somewhere. Where, where are they going? Where's Joseph and Nicodemus going? And so Joseph heads to a tomb that he had for himself. He was a rich man. He had a cave. Maybe that cave, that tomb was carved out for him and his family, but now he's going to give it as a gift to the Savior. He's going to put Jesus' body in there. It's a safe place. It's got a massive stone that goes with it. It would take maybe 12 to 15 men to move that thing down to cover the entrance to the tomb. And these same women are watching Joseph of Arimathea and Nicodemus the whole time. And they follow them with Jesus' body. And then Nicodemus and Joseph go into the tomb. They had Jesus' body wrapped. They laid it in the tomb. Joseph and uh, Nicodemus probably got some help. And then they come out. And then they push that huge massive stone. I've seen these massive stones of tombs in Israel myself. And they set them up right in front. And they dig a ditch. And then you just kind of roll it in with several men pushing it and then take 15 plus people just to to remove it almost impossible and these women they haven't left they're there the whole time they they're following behind they and they watch where Jesus's body is laid up to that day probably an unknown tomb 
That's verse 55. Now, the women who had come with Jesus out of Galilee, who followed him throughout the course of his ministry, saw the tomb and how his body had been laid. Now they know. Okay, ladies, that's where it is. Then the ladies had a plan to keep caring for their blessed Lord, Jesus. Following through on typical protocol, the Jews in that day, when there was a beloved dead one, that the body would be tended to and anointed with perfume and oils. as a way of even ministering to their loved one after they had died. And that's what they plan to do. Verse 56, chapter 43. Then the women returned and prepared spices and perfumes and they're getting ready and they can't do it on the Sabbath day because you can't do work on the Sabbath day. But we'll wait till after the Sabbath day. We'll wait till the first day of the week. We'll wait till Sunday. And we're going to go back with these expensive perfumes and we're going to tend to our Lord. And we're going to rub his dead body down or anoint him with oils and perfumes. So they don't believe that Jesus is going to rise from the dead. That's the whole point. They're going to go there early Sunday morning to anoint Jesus's dead body, which takes us to our passage here, verse 1. But on the first day of the week, on Sunday, early in the morning, the two other Gospels say that it was almost just the break of day, just as the sun was rising at dawn. As early as they could possibly do it, they're going to go. And they think that Jesus is still dead. And they're thinking two things. Jesus is still dead. He is in the tomb. We need to anoint him. And also that big, huge, massive, irremovable stone is still in front of the cave. How, literally, one of the Gospels is they were talking among themselves, how in the world are we going to move that massive stone? That's what they're talking about. John tells us that before this group of ladies made it to the tomb, Mary Magdalene made it there ahead of them by herself. In John chapter 20, it says that Mary Magdalene and her alone actually went to the tomb while it was still dark. And if you compare all four Gospels, it turns out that Mary Magdalene ended up going to the tomb, didn't see Jesus, went back, told Peter, uh, didn't know what happened to his body, thought he was stolen. She went back to the tomb, and the second time she went back, Jesus Christ appeared to her literally, resurrected as the Lord. But right here is the account of these these women, but on the first day of the week at early dawn, they came to the tomb, these women bringing spices, which they had prepared, and they found the stone rolled away from the tomb. Praise God. How did that happen? But when they entered, and we know that an angel had removed the stone, supernatural angel from heaven, and they decided to go in. They were invited in another gospel account, says the, an angel invited them to go in. Look, go look. He's not here. And so they do. They muster up the courage. They go into the tomb. They entered. They did not find the body of the Lord Jesus. You can just think of the shock. They weren't rejoicing when they went in. They're expecting to find Jesus dead. They go in. His body is gone. So it's not time for celebration. They weren't thinking, hallelujah, resurrection. That was not a part of their mind thinking at all. They entered in, didn't find his body. As a result, verse 4, they were perplexed. They were questioning, oh my goodness, what happened? Oh Lord, help us. Where's his body? Maybe they were thinking what Mary Magdalene was thinking. His body was stolen. His enemies have taken him. So they were perplexed. They were just emotionally shaken to the core and not in a good way. Perplexity. Then all of a sudden, here's this group of women in this dark cave with an empty tomb totally perplexed, maybe even scared, and all of a sudden, boom! Did I scare you? Well, that's what the text is trying to do. That's what behold means. Literally. Out of nowhere, instantaneously, two men appeared right in front of them. 
Behold. Behold, two men suddenly stood near them. These were angels. We know this from the other account. Two. There were only two. They looked like men. They didn't look like women. They looked like men. Males. Grown males. Human forms. Human bodies. So there was something recognizable about them. But there was also something distinct about them that was actually awe-inspiring. And that was what they were wearing. The text says, what were they wearing? The two men stood near them in dazzling clothing, bright as literally bright as lightning, flashing lightning, brilliant light coming from their garments, maybe even as bright as the sun and they have to shy away from it. This is abnormal. Humans don't dress like this. This is uh, from another world. And that's why they were so overcome and so overwhelmed at the presence of these two angels. They knew that something was different in their midst. And humans in the Bible all throughout history are always startled by the presence of angels because of their appearance and also because they are sinless. And with that brings guilt upon us. When we're in the presence of sinlessness, that brings guilt. We are exposed. This is overwhelming. They were perplexed. And now they're seeing this dazzling, unexplainable, heavenly garments that these Two unexpected men are wearing, and verse 5 says, And the women were terrified, scared to death from these angels. What did they do? They bowed their faces to the ground. The only thing they could do was just for cover, bowing their faces, maybe in shame, just out of fear, to the ground, not knowing what to do. So the angels spoke to them, ministered to them. That's why they came. Why were these angels? Because there was an angel that came, moved the stone. There was an angel that came, moved the stone, sat on the stone, said a few words, come on in. There are two angels sent from God in the tomb. What were the angels there for? They were there to be messengers to all of disciples that came that day to explain to them the meaning of the significance of why Jesus' body was gone. They were interpreting truth for God to Jesus' disciples. God's truth needs to be interpreted, and it needs to be interpreted accurately, and that was the job of the angels. His body wasn't stolen. The Romans didn't take him. There's no swoon theory. He didn't fake a death. Here's God's divine interpretation from authoritative angels. By the way, there's two angels. They are validating biblical truth in accordance with Deuteronomy 19. Truth can't be validated unless you have the testimony of two or three witnesses, and there's two Angels from God validating, here is the story, here's what happened, here's where Jesus is, here's what's going on. And they, they, so they say to the women, they know they're scared, why do you seek the living among the dead? Or why do you seek the living one among the dead? They know it's Jesus they're looking for, and they just point blank. He is not here, but he is risen. He is risen. How glorious is that? That's the good news. Now, Keep in mind, these women, as far as we know, they're named a little later. They had been walking with Jesus, following Jesus. They were part of the entourage of Jesus up in Galilee for maybe two years. These women. So there's the 12 apostles and then this group of women. What were they doing? Well, Luke 8 tells us they were helping Jesus. They were ministering to Jesus. They were ministering to the apostles. They were collecting money to give to the apostles, giving it to Judas, that reliable guy, the treasurer so they could buy food and whatever they need as they were traveling. So that's who these women were, and that's what they were doing. So these women were often with Jesus, and so for two-plus years, maybe they were hearing undiluted teaching from the Lord Jesus himself on all matters that he'd been talking about to the apostles. And so 
at least for the last six months up to this event, Jesus had been emphasizing a new truth or new revelation that from now on, I'm going, my goal is to go to Jerusalem and to be betrayed and to be arrested and to be beaten and to be rejected and to be killed and to be crucified. He'd been saying that for six months. We've been talking about the the last couple of weeks. He was saying it to the 12 apostles, but he was also saying it to these women and anybody else in immediate vicinity in that private group that was following Jesus for those last six months. These women were in that group. They had heard guaranteed on more than one occasion, Jesus explicitly say, okay, disciples, there's the finish line. Six to three months away. Not here in Galilee, it's in Jerusalem where they despise me, where they hate me, where they've tried to murder me, where they've chased me out of town, where they tried to stone me, where they've already accused me of blasphemy. That's the goal. And when I go there, I will be rejected, I will be arrested, I will be killed, I will be crucified. But I will raise again three days later. Now, he said that several times, and they had, when, it, when he said that he was going to die. They didn't want to hear it. They didn't hear it. Did not read. Does not compute. Does not compute. Just whoosh, right over the head. So up to this point, they still don't know why Jesus had to die. Totally confused. They had false teaching from the Pharisees for decades. Old Testament truth had been shrouded in human tradition and error. They also needed their understanding enlightened by the Spirit of God because they were fallen, finite humans. We need the same thing. So they don't understand the meaning of his death. That's why they think he's still dead and came to anoint his body. So they've been living in this fog for maybe six months to a year about the reality that he had to die. Not only did they not know he was going to die, they had no idea what the meaning of it was. And then look what happens from these divine agents from Almighty God. He is not here. He's risen Remember how he spoke to you while he was still in Galilee? You remember, you should know this. Why is his resurrection a surprise to you? He, he told you this several times. I will die, I will rise again three days later. Do you not remember? Well, this time the Spirit of God intervenes and jogs their memory, and they do remember. Verse 7, well, what exactly did Jesus say? What was the message? Well, that the Son of Man, that's Jesus, must be delivered. He must die. That's God's plan, the Father's plan, Jesus' plan. He must die. And he must be delivered in the hands of sinful men, evil men, wicked men, the Jewish leadership, the Romans, and be crucified. Nails in the hands, nails in the feet. One of the reasons they didn't want to hear that message is because crucifixion was reserved for the worst of the worst of despicable sinners. He only crucified the worst of the worst. Cursed is he who hangs on a tree. Only a cursed man would be hung on a tree and crucified. So that's why, no, Jesus, you're not cursed. You're the blessed Savior. You are our master. You are our Lord. We follow you. You are the Holy One. You are the Messiah. You can't be the cursed one unthinkable but he also said that he would rise on the third day and verse 8 says and they remembered his words boom instantaneously see that's the, that's the work of the holy spirit on the mind of a believer and that's called illumination allowing them to understand that glorious truth that's what god did to us when we heard the message we were unbelievers we were dead in sin we were obtuse in our thinking we were darkened in our mind and in our thoughts we couldn't respond to a spiritual stimulus from god we couldn't save ourselves not dependent upon logic or amassing information or 
the performance of the one telling us the truth and his skill as a rhetorician. It's all the work of God. You hear the truth, and it's when God sovereignly, through his spirit, in conjunction with the living word of God, as it goes into our mind and we think, God opens up our understanding. He takes away the veil of unbelief, the veil of sin, the veil of satanic blindness through the power of his word and the Holy Spirit so that we can believe and understand, finally. That's how every single one of us who are Christians got saved. We heard information, we heard information, we heard information, and we were dull, or we resisted, or we didn't believe, or we thought we knew. And we didn't, and God just did a miracle. And we were born again by the living word of God and the power of the Holy Spirit, says Titus 3. So here's the Spirit of God doing His work. What a glorious thing. And there's an instant change. They go from being totally perplexed, totally terrified. And then the other Gospels say that as soon as that happened, they were just filled with joy, immense joy, unspeakable joy. They'd seen the light. They know the truth. He is risen just as he said. Oh, this is what this means. He is the Messiah of the Old Testament. As a result, they just they scattered and ran as fast as they could back to the, the other disciples, especially the apostles. Oh, we need to tell the apostles. You know, those guys, the, the 10 guys hiding, you know, they're locked up and hiding, isolated away from it because they're fearing for their life. We need to go tell them the good news. And that's what they did. Immediately, they returned from the tomb and reported all these things to the 11 apostles and all the rest of that small group of disciples. And you would think that the apostles, when they heard this from the women, were, oh, man, that is awesome. Thank you, ladies. That is so fantastic. We want to go see Jesus ourselves. Well, that's not how they responded. But anyway, verse 10. Well, who were these amazing women? Well, they were specifically Mary Magdalene and Joanna and Mary, the mother of James. There it is, Mary Magdalene. In the list of women throughout the four Gospels, Mary Magdalene is always listed first, kind of like Peter's listed first all the time when the apostles are enumerated. Mary Magdalene. Why? Because she was the prominent one. She was the motherly one. She was the matriarch of the believing disciples, the ladies, the encourager, no doubt, probably the, the wise one, and probably the one who had the most amazing transformation with respect to her life. The Gospels tell us that Mary Magdalene here, what was her sin? She was possessed by seven demons. She was a demon-possessed woman. That means she was an evil woman. She opened herself up to demon possession. There were things that went on that led to that. And once she was demon-possessed, there was a lifestyle characterized by demon possession. It was gross. It was dirty. It was immoral. It was depraved. It was blasphemous, utterly, to the core. Being possessed by seven demons, there was no more sinful, wicked, evil person when she was in that state. And God in his grace, Jesus in his mercy, saw this woman, didn't shy away from her, didn't fear her, didn't think she was unclean. He had compassion for her. He loved her as a sinner. God so loved the world that he gave his beloved son, the Lord Jesus. And he saw Mary Magdalene at some point, gave her the truth of the gospel. And because he had sovereign power as the son of God, cast out those demons. And in an instant, she was transformed, made new, a new creation, follower of Jesus, child of the king born in the family of God, adopted forever, secure in him, follower of Christ, and the most devoted, loyal follower of Christ. That's Mary Magdalene. Amazing. What a message for us. What's the good news? Jesus is in the business of changing people. Jesus is in the business of transforming lives. If you're here this morning and you haven't been forgiven of your sin, you're running from God, you're hiding from guilt, you have fear of death, 
you know ultimately deep down you've got to get right with your maker. You're trying different things. You've been trying different things. Ultimately, they're all futile. It's not too late. It doesn't matter what you've done. It doesn't matter what the sin is. It's forgivable because of who Jesus is and his work of death on the cross and resurrection. So he is. He's calling out to you through the gospel, through the spirit, through other believers, through his living word, wooing you, convicting you, pleading with you that you would confess your sin, admit to the creator, cry out for a savior. When you do that and understand that, that Jesus died as your substitute on the cross and absorbed God's wrath on your behalf, he'll save you in an instant. He'll make you a new creation. All your sins will be forgiven. That's the good news of Christianity. That's the meaning of the resurrection. That's what's going on. And that was Mary Magdalene, another changed lady, Joanna. Who was she? Jo- this is amazing. Uh, Luke 8 says that Joanna was married to this guy, Chusa. Well, who's Chusa? Chusa was the, the house steward of Herod Antipas. Herod Antipas, Herod Antipas, the son of Herod the Great. Herod Antipas, the one who was in charge of all the region up in Galilee where Jesus spent most of his time doing ministry and also down Perea where John the Baptist did ministry along the Jordan River. Herod Antipas, the one who had John the Baptist's head chopped off. Herod Antipas, the evil, wicked adulterer who abandoned his wife and married somebody else's wife. Herod Antipas, not only an adulterer, but an incestuous one at that as he marries this woman who's not his wife, who is his niece and half-sister. John the Baptist called out his sin, and Herod Antipas had John the Baptist murdered, decapitated. That Herod Antipas, sovereign authority in the entire northern region of Israel where Jesus' main ministry was, that Herod Antipas, the same Herod Antipas who entertained Jesus during the last week of his life in a kangaroo court, mocking him, making fun of him, do tricks for me. King of Jews. And Scripture says that Jesus answered him not a word. Well, that Herod Antipas. And Chusa was a man who was an assistant to Herod Antipas. He took charge of his palace. He was in charge of his finances. How do we know? Because of the Greek word used by Luke in Luke chapter 8. That was the, that was, that's who he was. The personal steward of Herod Antipas in his temple there. And Chusa was married to this woman named Joanna. Joanna became a believer. Joanna lived probably near or in the temple of Herod Antipas, the one who would also be guilty of condemning Jesus to death. Joanna. How'd she become a believer? She was sick with some disease. Jesus had compassion on her. He healed her. Can you imagine that? She had some uh, unexplainable disease. Maybe it was very severe. Jesus healed her, healed her fully and perfectly. She became a devoted follower of Jesus Christ. She was a woman of means, no doubt, as in terms of her affiliation with Herod Antipas' temple. And as a result, she was used by God sovereignly to love Jesus, minister Jesus, follow Jesus, and also give materially, materially to Jesus and the disciples so they could minister. She's putting her neck on the line. She's putting herself in a very dangerous, compromised position. She doesn't care. An amazing woman of courage. And then finally, Mary, the mother of James, was also in this group. Mary, the mother of James and Joseph. James is highlighted here because James became one of the 12 apostles, but not his brother. James the Less. There was James and John. They were apostles. And there was another James, James the Less. James the younger one had two brothers. And that's who these these women are. Amazing. So these women went to the tomb, ministered to Jesus, thought he was dead, 
reminded by the angels that he is alive. They believe. They are ecstatic. They are worshiping when they get to meet the Lord Jesus, and they do. Another uh, scripture passage says the Lord Jesus actually appears to these women in a resurrected body, and they worship him. Verse 11, but these words appear to them as not. So they go back and tell, sorry, verse 10. So they go, all the other women, and they went back, and they told the apostles this great news. Verse 11, but these words appeared to the apostles as nonsense, and they couldn't, couldn't believe the women. Verse 11, but 12, nevertheless, Peter gets up in a hurry, and he dashes to the tomb, and he runs in the tomb, stooping and looking in. He saw the linen wrappings only, and he went away to his home, marveling at what had happened. Wow! I don't know what happened, but it is empty, like they said. And that tombstone was removed, says Peter. And we find out later in Luke chapter 24, very mysterious verse, verse 34. It says that the Lord has really risen and appeared to Simon Peter. 1 Corinthians 15 says the same thing. Jesus rose from the dead and he appeared to Cephas. There was a private appearance of the Lord Jesus Christ on Easter Sunday between Jesus and Peter alone. And we, the Gospels don't mention when it happened. We don't know when it happened. We know it happened on Easter. We know none of the details. It was between Jesus and Peter. You know, they had some business to take care of. Because the last conversation that Jesus had, had with uh, Simon, it was not good. Lord, I'll go with you anywhere. No, you won't. You're going to deny me. You're going to deny me three times. No, I won't, Lord. He did deny him. He denied him three times. And he went out and wept bitterly, utterly distraught, and then went into hiding. And the Lord Jesus graciously appears to Peter privately and reveals himself in glory to Peter and no doubt reminded him of these truths. I told you I was going to rise again from the dead. And no doubt the Spirit of God, ching, enlightened Peter. What a glorious truth. So that's the place of the tomb. Again, notice Mary Magdalene, Joanna, and Mary, the mother of James, Again, the confirmation being made to a testimony of two or three witnesses. The other scriptures tell us that the Lord Jesus Christ in a resurrected body appeared to these women. And it says they worshipped him. And as a matter of fact, it goes into detail that Mary Magdalene, when she saw Jesus, she thought he was the gardener. Can you tell me where they've laid my Lord? And he's like, Mary. And she said, Rabboni, Rabbi, teacher, master, it's you. And she just clung to him, holding him, worshipping him, probably weeping, kissing his feet. Jesus was welcoming that worship. He was the God man. And they said, okay, that's enough. Mary, you've got to go tell my apostles and tell them where to meet me. And she did. So they, they all worshiped the risen Lord Jesus. Let's go on after the, after the historical fact of the empty tomb. Let's go on to the person of Jesus, the significance of his resurrection. If you don't understand who Jesus is, you don't understand the meaning of the resurrection cultural christianity out there oh it's easter yeah jesus rose from the dead whatever that means a lot of people that say that they don't even believe that if you press them so you actually believe that jesus crucified lost all his blood literally died was dead and buried for three days and then actually came back to life in the same body if you press most people uh, i guess it didn't happen but it's a nice idea and it inspires people we are told No, so we've got to learn about the person and the person of Jesus Christ, what he was like after his resurrection. He is still that same person. And, we get, and that's how you become a Christian. It's really the, the essence of eternal life isn't how long you will live. It's not a quantity of life. The essence of eternal life. If I were to ask you, do you have eternal life? 
If you're a Christian, you say, yeah, I have eternal life. What does that mean? Well, I'm going to live forever. Well, not really. I mean, yeah, but that's secondary. The essence of eternal life is the definition that Jesus gave of eternal life in John 17. This is eternal life, knowing God the Father and His Son, Jesus Christ. Eternal life is not primarily quantitative. It is qualitative. Do you know the Creator of the universe and His blessed and only Son, Jesus Christ the Savior, intimately, personally, in a way you don't know anyone else on earth? That is eternal life. And it lasts forever, and it can't be taken away. And it's between you and God alone. And it's His gift to you. It's the Lord Jesus. Knowing Jesus Christ. Well, what about Jesus? Well, verse. Uh, let's look at the person of Jesus, verse 36. While they were telling... So Jesus uh, appears to the women. Well, first He appears to Mary Magdalene, then the rest of the women... And then he also appeared to the soldiers who fell over dead, like. So he's making all these appearances. There's all kinds of witnesses. The angels witnessed the fact that he rose again from the dead. And then Jesus appears to Peter at some point on Easter Day. We don't know when. And then now he appears to two more disciples. These disciples, verses 13 uh, to 35, these were close associates and friends of the 12 apostles. One of them is named Cleopas. How do we know that? Because Luke tells us. How does Luke know that was his name? Because that's probably a person he interviewed to write this. Hey, Cleopas, I heard you were, uh, I heard Jesus appeared to you. I'm like a Johnny come lately. I wasn't really around when Jesus was ministering. What, uh, can you tell me about that? And he did. And here it is. So Cleopas and one of his friends on Resurrection Sunday, they were in Jerusalem. They decided to walk home seven miles going north from Jerusalem to Emmaus, little town. And they're walking along, and they're, t- they're distraught. They are saddened. Oh, I can't believe the Lord Jesus has been crucified. What are we going to do? And now our master is gone. And while they're talking, all of a sudden, this man shows up and starts walking with them. A stranger off the street starts talking. Hey, guys, how you doing? And lo and behold, it is actually Jesus Christ himself risen from the dead. And they're going on, and they're talking. And they're talking about these things. And Jesus, uh, who, they don't even know who he is yet. What things? He's, and they're like, what, what do you mean, what things? You don't know, you've got to be the only one around that doesn't know what things have just transpired in Jerusalem on this Friday. Well, what, what do you mean? And then they proceeded to tell Jesus about who Jesus was and how he's betrayed and murdered and crucified. And then Jesus uh, is listening. And then they finally arrive on their seven-mile journey, hour and a half or so walking, if they were walking, and they get to their house, and they invite Jesus in, and they plead with Jesus to come in, and he does. He, By the way, they can't recognize him because they were prevented from recognizing him, says the Bible. And then they go in and have dinner with Jesus. Jesus gives them a Bible study from the Old Testament, starting in Genesis all the way to Malachi. What is he doing there? He's explaining the plan. Hey, guys, you're Jewish. You grew up in the synagogue. You know the Bible. You believe it. Here it is. Look at this. Genesis 3.15, the Messiah had to die. Isaiah 53, the Messiah had to die. Psalm 22, the Messiah had to die. Psalm 16, he had to rise again from the dead. Isaiah 53, he died in the place of sinners. Isaiah 53, he was crushed by Almighty God on the cross. And he explains that plan, and then it says, after dinner, after the Bible study, their eyes were opened. Their eyes were, that was a sovereign work of God, same thing. And they understood, and they're, they're delighted as can be. Oh, you, oh my, you're Jesus, you're our Savior, you're risen from the dead in fulfillment of scriptures. They are ecstatic, they are so excited, and all of a sudden, boom, Jesus disappeared. They don't have time for dessert. They're going to run back, apparently, seven miles where they just came from and tell the apostles they have had dinner with Jesus. He's risen from the dead, and that's what they do. And so that's where we pick up at verse 36. 
They got up at the very hour. They run to the apostles. They probably get to the apostles' uh, hideout near midnight, maybe 11 o'clock at night. The door's probably locked. There's only at least maybe 10 or 11 of the apostles in there. Then they knock on the door. Uh, they get to go in, and these two disciples, and as the door opens to the apostles, verse 34, apparently the apostles shouted out, the Lord has really risen <clears throat> and has appeared to Simon. So before they could tell the apostles, the apostles found out the good news from all these witnesses. Then verse 36, they're allowed to come in, and now the apostles and those two disciples are talking. And while, verse 36, and while they were telling these things, Jesus himself stood in their midst. Boom, just like that. They're talking about Jesus. You wouldn't believe it. We saw him. We ate with him. We talked. Boom, there he is. That's what it means. He himself stood in their midst. The door was probably locked. Other passages, same scenario where it is locked. And he said to them, peace be to you. Calm down. Why? Jesus knows. You appear instantly like that. You're in a resurrected body. It's a little different. They can't. He can't be recognized unless God sovereignly allows it to be so. They are utterly frightened as a result. That's why he says, peace, peace, peace be with you. His voice, familiar voice, verse 37, but they were startled and frightened, and they thought that they were seeing a ghost, a spirit, a phantom, a mist, something demonic, something from the other world that was not healthy, something occultic. This is not good. This is a trick. This is a ploy. This is satanic, a spirit, a ghost. Maybe they're thinking of the book of Samuel and the, the, the witch of Endor. This is evil, a medium. Someone's playing with our mind. That's why they were frightened and perplexed. And that's why he said, peace. Peace. Verse 38, and he said to them, why are you troubled? Why do doubts arise in your hearts? Not only why are you fearful, why do you doubt? Why do you not believe that I would rise from the dead? You're my apostles. You're supposed to carry on my work. Do you still believe that I'm a, a phantom, a ghost, no body, just a vision? Verse 39, so Jesus says, see my hands and my feet? They have scars from the nails in his hands and in his feet. Look, it's me, your blessed Savior, the one that just died. Touch me even, touch and see, for a spirit or a ghost does not have flesh and bones as you see that I have. Jesus' resurrected body was made of flesh and bone, but it was different than ours. It was it's truly physical. If you saw it, he's in a human form. There's an identity in him that is uh, his continuity has been preserved into this light he still looks very similar to the jesus before but he's better it's a perfect body it's a physical body but it's a perfect body it's an eternal body it's a heavenly body it's a dynamic body it's an amazing body a flawless body one that will live forever and ever one that can live in this world and thrive and also live in the other world for all eternity with god with the angels this is an amazing body it's not dependent upon earthly things. And that's what he's saying. Here, touch me, see. The Spirit doesn't have flesh and bones, you see, that I have. And when he had said this, he showed them his hands and his feet. I witness account two or three witnesses, verified, validated. It becomes at this moment a historical reality that is undeniable. What is the, what is the proof or the evidence of the gospel? Proof and the evidence of the gospel is that Jesus Christ rose from the dead. That's the evidence. And you can have that confidence when you go and talk to an unbeliever, a critic, a skeptic. They're poking holes in your Christianity, making fun of you or whatever. Maybe it's a sincere unbeliever asking questions. And you give them the simple good news. Bad news is you're a sinner, separated from God because of sin. The good news, God made a solution. He sent Jesus, the God-man, to die in your place to absorb the wrath of God Buried, rose again from the dead after he died. 
He ascended on high. He's the King of kings and Lord of lords. He's the only Savior. And if you repent of your sin and believe in him, you shall be saved. Why should I believe that? Because there's evidence. Show me the evidence. I'll tell you the evidence. The evidence is he rose again from the dead 2,000 years ago. And multitudinous, reliable witnesses saw it, verified it. That's what the scripture says. Acts 17 says that the resurrection of Christ is the only proof needed to declare the gospel with authority. To any unbeliever, it doesn't matter whether an atheist, agnostic, educated, not educated, male, female, it doesn't matter their economic status, it doesn't matter how much information they have had before, it doesn't matter if they're religious, Buddhist, Islam, Muslim, New Ager, an unsaved Baptist, it doesn't matter. The same message saves all. And what is the greatest proof? It is the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Don't be detracted when someone asks you, give me more proof, give me more evidence. There is no greater proof. There is no greater evidence. Jesus Christ is risen and alive today. That's what's going on here. Here's proof. I'm risen. While they still could not believe, because of their joint amazement, he said to them, have you anything here to eat? Well, that's weird. So they gave him a piece of boiled broiled fish, and he took it and ate it. Why do you do that? Well, it says they still didn't believe. Here, touch me. You still don't believe? Well, first of all, here's my voice. Do you believe me now? No. Okay. Here's my scars. Touch me. Feel? Do you believe me now? No. Okay. Well, all right. Let me eat something. I'm not a ghost. He eats it. Okay, we're satisfied. And so for 40 days, Jesus existed in that resurrected body and he selectively only appeared to his disciples and it was the disciples he wanted to appear to he didn't go out in public he didn't go to the unbelievers he didn't go to the romans he didn't go to the sadducees and pharisees who killed him he selectively only went to disciples that were his and scripture says 10 times he made physical appearances to peter to the disciples the apostles the women to james his half brother who didn't believe he was the messiah a special appearance to his sibling. James, do you believe now? And then it says he appeared to 500 of his disciples all at one time. And Jesus is still, and then Jesus ascended into heaven and the apostles that were there when it happened, he was taken up by angels in the clouds in glory. And the angel said, what are you looking up into the sky for? He's going to return in like manner. He's going to come in a physical body. He's going to come with the angels. He's going to come in glory. He's going to come to Jerusalem. He's going to land on the Mount of Olives. And reign as the King of kings and Lord of lords. That's this Jesus. Jesus exists right now in heaven the same way he was right here. In a resurrected, perfect, physical body. Does Jesus have a physical body right now in the form that looks like a human? Yes, he does. And that is the Jesus we worship. Has he retained all the attributes of God? Yes. Even omnipresence? Yes. How is that possible? I have no idea. I believe it by faith. That's what the Bible says. That is our blessed Savior, the Lord Jesus. And because he is risen from the dead, ascended on high and in glory, he said, because I live, you also shall live. We're going to have the same body that Jesus did. He's going to transform, metamorphosize our body. That's the person of Jesus. What's the purpose of all this? Why did Jesus come? Jesus came to die. That was the purpose. Okay, well, then you've got to ask another question. What was the purpose of dying? He came to die. What was the purpose of dying? Look at verse 44. So he said to the apostles, these are my words, which I spoke to you while I was with you, that all things which are written about me in the law of Moses and the prophets and the Psalms must be fulfilled. I came to fulfill scripture. Okay, get more specific, Jesus. He will. 
I came to die. And I came to rise again from the dead. Get more specific, Jesus. He will. Why did you die? Verse 45, then he opened their minds to understand the scriptures. That's, that's a beautiful ministry of the Holy Spirit. The Spirit does that for us who are believers so that we can understand scripture. He has to open our mind so that we can see it. It involves thinking. It also involves faith. And it also involves the supernatural work of the Spirit of God. Can't go to God on your own terms. Can't go to God with your own logic. Can't go to God with your own human finite thinking. He opened their minds to understand the scriptures. Boom. And then there's a change in transformation. He said to them, thus it is written that the Christ would suffer, rise again from the dead the third day. And here it is. What was the purpose of Jesus coming? To die. What was the purpose of Jesus dying? Verse 47, the ultimate purpose of Jesus' death. The meaning of his death. That repentance for forgiveness of sins would be proclaimed. That is the Christian message. That's the mission of the church. Right here. In order that, for the purpose of, go and represent me, be my disciple, start the church, infiltrate the world, talk to unbelievers. To do what? To be good models and examples? No, not primarily. To do things for people? No, not primarily. The main thing is we've got a message to share. That's what he's saying. That's the mission of the church. And here's the message. It's called the good news. That repentance for forgiveness of sins should be proclaimed, should be preached because of who Jesus is, because he fulfilled scripture, because he died and rose again in fulfillment of those scriptures. That is our message. We go out and preach this to the world. That's what we do. We don't lose focus. Go and evangelize the world. What is the greatest, most unique privilege that the church has in this life today? What is the most unique thing that the church can do in this life that we can only do in this life that we can't do in heaven? That's our mission. Some would say, well, uh, worship. No, we can do worship in heaven. We will for all eternity. We worship now, but it's not unique. Some say fellowship. No, we'll have fellowship in heaven forever. We'll serve us. No, we'll serve forever in heaven. What is that unique, distinct, and mission of the church is to share the good news, the gospel. We can't do that in heaven. It'll be too late. And that's what this is. This is the glorious message of the good news, that uh, repentance, forgiveness of sins would be proclaimed. It is preached. It's done. It's already accomplished. That's our message. It's a unique message, unlike other religions and philosophies. And they take various forms that uh, they say things like forgiveness can be earned. Forgiveness can be bought. The worst one, forgiveness is not needed. No, that's, that's not the message. The message of Jesus Christ is the only message, the most important message. Repentance, forgiveness of sins should be proclaimed because it has been secured by the work of Jesus Christ. We don't earn it. We don't deserve it. It is given as a gift, by grace, through faith, through the glorious work of our gracious God. That is the purpose. You are witnesses of these things. Represent me. We are now witnesses. Verse 49, and behold, I'm sending with you the promise from the Father, which is the Holy Spirit who equips us. That is the purpose. And then finally, the pinnacle of the resurrection. You can't talk about the resurrection apart from the death of Christ, the birth of Christ, the ministry of Christ, the person of Christ. And you also can't talk about and understand the significance of the resurrection apart from the pinnacle of his ministry on earth, and that was the ascension, and that's verse 50 and through 53. So Jesus leads out his disciples and the apostles. He's ministering to them, encouraging them. They go as far as Bethany, which is just about two miles east of Jerusalem, very close, where Lazarus, Martha, Mary lived. And he, he faces his apostles, and he lifts up his hands. And he lifted up his hands, and he blessed them. He prayed for them. 
He's sending them on their mission with his blessing. Verse 51, and he kept blessing them and he parted from them. And he was carried away up into heaven by the angels at the time of the ascension. And they, after worshiping him, returned to Jerusalem with great joy and were continually in the temple praising God. And if you know Jesus Christ this morning as your personal Savior, you can do the very same thing. Amen? That's the true meaning of the resurrection. We worship the risen Lord Jesus Christ who's given his life for sinners. Let's give him the glory through prayer. Father, we thank you for our time together and time to be reminded from the Bible, your word that you so graciously have preserved through the ages and also privileged us to have access to it. And we thank you for Jesus Christ, the blessed Savior, his love for sinners, his substitutionary death. Thank you that he absorbed wrath so we don't have to, that we don't have to go to hell, that we can be saved from sin and know you and be forgiven of sin and have joy even this very day and have the most intimate communion with you. We love you. We give you all the glory in Christ's name. Amen. Thank you for listening. Dr. McManus is an author, seminary professor, and pastor teacher of Grace Bible Fellowship. For more information about Grace Bible Fellowship, please visit our website at gbfsv.org or call us at 650-630-0009.